First Corinthians chapter 13. Let me read this text. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes... The imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Well, this is the thing that was falling on Godwin's foot. This is something I got as a wedding present uh, 21 and a half years ago when Jennifer and I got married here in this church. And uh, it's, a, it's a picture, and there's nine hearts in a grid. And in each heart, uh, for those of you who went the way back, it, it has a line from 1 Corinthians. You know, love is patient, love is kind, and it goes through this, uh, this psalm or rather, this, uh, this chapter. And probably, I'm guessing that that's how most of us think of 1 Corinthians 13. It's the wedding chapter. It's what you read at a wedding. Probably the last time you heard 1 Corinthians 13 read in a church, it was at a wedding. Uh, and yet, from our study of 1 Corinthians, uh, I hope we realize by now that Paul was not writing this to a newlywed couple, as appropriate as it is for marriage. That when Paul was writing this, he was writing it to a really messed up church. That when Paul was writing 1 Corinthians 13, it was not for a couple that had just tied the knot, but for a congregation that was coming unraveled. Uh, that that, that, that uh, art belongs even more than, than in a newlywed couple's bedroom wall. It even more belongs in a church foyer or on the front door of a church, that as the members come in to be with each other, they're reminded of how they're to love each other. If we look at 1 Corinthians, uh, more specifically here in chapter 13, we were reminded, if you were here last Sunday, you know this, that Paul is dealing with a particular issue in the church that was creating conflict. It was the issue of spiritual gifts. 
the, the, the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to every Christian to use to serve others in the body. It's not something you'd think there would be conflict about, but this, this congregation was adept at making conflict out of just about anything. And even the spiritual gifts had become a source of conflict because rather than seeing the gifts as something that you use to serve others, you know, like giving someone a gift, they saw the spiritual gifts as something to boast about and to be proud about and to, to be arrogant and to compete with one another. And, and so there were certain people who had certain gifts who thought they were more spiritual than the others. It was that kind of a mindset. And so Paul here is trying to get them to think correctly about the spiritual gifts, to realize that the gifts, like, like we said, are not for ourselves but for others and for building up the whole church. But then interestingly, if you look at chapter 12, look at the very last sentence. Having taught them in general about spiritual gifts, he says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. I want to show you, Corinthians, something more important than spiritual gifts. I want to show you something more central than spiritual gifts. Something that if you don't have this, your spiritual gifts are actually rather worthless. In fact, if you don't have this one thing, your spiritual gifts might actually be detrimental to people in the church as you're using your gifts. In fact, if you don't have this one thing, I'm going to argue from the scriptures that you're actually in danger of being deleted as a church. God may just disqualify the whole congregation if you don't have this one thing. And what is this most excellent thing that's even more important than spiritual gifts? Well, it's love. And so what we have here in chapter 13 is Paul's attempt to help a, a divided, selfish church elevate love as more important than the gifts, as more important than all the things this church is all excited about they had forgotten about love for one another. And so this chapter is, is a kind of exalted chapter. There's a certain poetry to it. But it's also kind of a rebuke, really. This chapter is a little bit of a pushback on this congregation. And so it's both inspiring but also challenging. And uh, let's look at this chapter. It, it falls into three very clear sections. And in each of these sections, Paul is trying to show in one way or another why love is so important in the life of a congregation, why it's so important for us at South Shore Baptist Church to be marked profoundly by love for each other. And so he, he, uh, you'll see these three sections. They're really clear. The first one is in verses 1 to 3. And here Paul stresses the necessity of love. That's verses 1 to 3, the necessity of love. In other words, if you don't have love, you don't have nothing. You've got to have love. It is absolutely necessary for the Christian life and the life of being a church together. And so you have these sentences in verses 1 to 3 where he says, if I, da, 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 if I have this gift or this ability or this talent, but I have not love, then nothing. Right? And he says it three times in different ways. So the first one in verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It seems that the spiritual gift the Corinthians were most hyped up about was speaking in tongues. The ability to speak in either other languages or perhaps to make sounds that were unintelligible. And perhaps they saw that as a sign of being a really spiritual person if you spoke in tongues. And here's Paul saying, look, if you speak in the tongue of men, forget that. If you spoke in the tongue of angels... You know, if, if, if you could go to heaven and have a conversation with Gabriel, 
All right? But you don't love each other? Well, you're like, you know, you're like my kids when they were three years old and they find the pots and pan drawer. And they get out a pot and a pan and they walk around the house going, I've got to get those pots and pans in a higher cupboard. Like, oh, that's all it is. It's just a bunch of gonging and banging without love. Or verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, if you've got miracle-working faith but have not love, he says, I am nothing. You know, if we met somebody who had incredible spiritual insight, who could solve all kinds of spiritual mysteries for us, and who could perform miracles because they had so much faith, we would call that person a prophet, I mean, that, person, that person could have a, a huge following. That person could start their own church or religion, right? But Paul says, hey, if you don't have love, you're nothing. I'm nothing. Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. I find that verse very intriguing because you'd think that giving all you possess to the poor is the essence of love. But, but it shows us that for Paul, love is not only an action, but it also involves the intention of the heart. That it's possible to do something that seems really, really good and philanthropic, and something that everyone would be like, wow, that was amazing. You must be a really great person, because look what you did. But Paul's saying, you know, it's possible to do good things from a not good motive, or, or a less than pure motive. And so God judges love not only by the action and the sacrifice, but also by the motive. And if you think about it, that totally makes sense. You think about all the motivations that we have to do good things. You know, why do people do good things? All kinds of motives. Sometimes they're motivated by guilt. Some people are are very do-gooders. But what's driving it is fear and guilt and a sense of ought, not a sense of love for people. Um, Sometimes we're, we're motivated by pride. Some people want to be able to say, yeah, 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 I was you know, down, down uh, helping out that person the other day, <clears throat> you know, like I usually do on Saturdays. And, you know, we, people boast. Uh, p- people do good things to justify themselves, to validate themselves. People sometimes do good things to stick it to other people and to say, yeah, look what I did. I mean, people, people are complex. Um, have you ever met someone who, who does a lot of nice things and a lot of good things, and they start doing nice, good things for you, but suddenly you feel there's like a control thing involved in it? it, it and they're, they're trying to kind of, you know, control everybody and fix everybody, and then you're like, is this love or is this something else? This feels weird. And so I've done good things in my life, but they don't always come out of love. For me, it often comes out of pride or self-justification. And so Paul says, it's possible to give all you have to the poor, which would be an astoundingly good deed. But if you don't have love, it didn't do you any good. We can be like the Pharisees who did their good deeds to be seen by men and had their reward in full. So Paul is challenging us to see that these good things, and these are all good things, right? Speaking in tongues, that's great. Having a gift of prophecy, wonderful. Giving all you have to the poor, good. These aren't bad things. But without love, they, they're useless things. And so it shows that love is the higher priority, and that's what really matters. And I couldn't help but wonder as I was reading this, if Paul was writing First South Shore Baptist chapter 13, 
and he was writing to our church, I wonder what are the things that we in our church, good things, positive things, that we as a church elevate and that we value as a congregation that are all good things but without love are kind of undercut and are lost. And, and I was thinking, well, I, you know, I don't know. But, well, let me hazard a guess at the risk of, well, I don't know, maybe something. Um, I think one of the things we value in our church is Bible teaching. And that's good. We preach from the Bible. Our Sunday school classes teach from the Bible. We have growth groups where we study the Bible. When we make decisions about our life or we try to make decisions as a church, one of the things we always ask is, what does the Bible say? And that's good. In fact, I would say, I would go so far as to say that if a church doesn't teach the Bible, it's not really a church in God's eyes. I mean, how can you be a church that doesn't listen to the Word of God? It's not God's people. And so, so that's a defining mark of the church. And yet, we could be a very biblically knowledgeable church and lack love. Have you ever been in a congregation or met a person who seemed to know the Bible backwards and forward, but boy, they were just prickly and difficult. And you say, where's the love? And so you can have good Bible knowledge, but if you don't have love, there's a disconnect between what's here and what's coming out of your heart. Or another thing, you know, we value in our church is foreign missions. And that's good. We give lots of money to missions. Our church was founded on missions. We, we, we believe in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, and that's good. We have people going on mission trips this summer. It's awesome. I hope that never changes, and I wish, I wish we could even amp it up more. But if we have not love, then we've already failed the mission. Love is preeminent. I think our church, and probably just this culture around us in, in general, I think we value talent and gifts. We value educated, education and people who are good at things. And, and when we find people who are talented and gifted and educated, we tend to put them up on pedestals. But if someone's on a pedestal and they have not love, it's just waiting for a big crash. We, we value success. We value accomplishment and achievement, and that's a good thing too. We shouldn't value failure. <laughs> but without love, you know, something is amiss. And, and it's always tempting to, to measure success in numbers, isn't it? And this is always a battle for churches. It's not just our church. It's most churches, really. But, but anytime you, you know, we get in a church and we say, well, are we succeeding as a church? That's kind of a question we ask. And we say, well, how do we know if we're succeeding? And we, it seems like we always fall back at some point on numbers. You know, how many people? How many people were in church? How many people came to the men's retreat? How many people are going to the women's retreat? How many people came to the vow renewal service? Oh, lots. That was success. Not so many? Mm, I don't feel so good. Or how much money is coming into the church? Oh, we're in the black. We're succeeding. We're in the red. We're failing. And I'm not against numbers. I would love to see our church full with people coming to hear about Jesus and meeting each other and hearing the gospel. But without love, we've already failed. Love is preeminent. In fact, let me show you this. This, this passage always troubles me. Put a bookmark here in 1 Corinthians 13. Turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And this is a letter, not to Corinth, but to the church in Ephesus, which was a couple hundred miles due east from Corinth across the Aegean Sea. 
And this is a letter not written by Paul, but by Jesus to his church in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, you have this letter, and it has a lot of good things to say to this church. This is a really strong church in a lot of ways. It says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are the words of Jesus. I know your deeds, he says, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardship for my name and you've not grown weary. That's an awesome church. They've held to the truth. They've persevered. They haven't let false teachers and, and wicked people weasel their way into the church and corrupt it from the inside. They've endured probably persecution because they've stood for the truth. They've stood for what's right and wrong, even if it's not culturally popular. In fact, look down at verse 6. Jesus says, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't exactly know who the Nicolaitans are, but they seem to be some kind of group of false teachers in the church. And so they, they, they love sound doctrine. They're hardworking. But they have one little problem. They're short on love. <laughs> look at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love, your, the love you had at first, your original love. Somehow you lost the love. And so what does he say? Well, you're just a little out of balance, so correct that. No. Verse 5, remember the height from which you've fallen. The height. Not just, well, you're pretty good, just tweak the love thing a little bit and we'll be all set. You guys are crashing and burning. Repent and do the things you did at first If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. In other words, I'm going to delete you as a church. Wow! That's how important love is. A church that is faithful to Scripture and faithful to God and hardworking and persevering but loses love is in danger of being disqualified as one of Jesus' churches. Love is necessary. Going back to chapter 13. If you don't have love, you have nothing. Even if you have all the gifts and all the talents and abilities. All good things that we should have. But without love, all the air goes out of the tire. Well, that raises a question then, or should raise a question. So what is love? What do we mean by that? You know, love, love, love. Okay, well, let's define that because we all know That word is used in a lot of different, sometimes crazy ways in our culture. People talk about love and, you know, I love pizza. You know, I love the Patriots. Okay, but what does that mean? Is it love like a romantic comedy? Like what kind of love are we talking about here? What is love? So we come to the second part of chapter 13 where having shown us that love is absolutely necessary for the Christian life in a Christian church, that This is what love is. And so we go from the necessity of love in verses 1 to 3 to what I'm going to call the nature of love in verses 4 to 7. So the necessity of love and now the nature of love. Again, Paul's trying to elevate love so that the Corinthians will seek love even more than seeking spiritual gifts. And so he he lists this wonderful description of love. And, of course, this is the, the part that really clicks in at weddings, right? This is what's on the little uh, painting that someone gave me. Uh, Did someone in the church give me that? I don't even know anymore. I like it, by the way. 
just saying. Yeah. Uh, so so this, uh, this section, second section, verses 4 to 7, that describes love, um, it, it falls into three parts. The first part is verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is patient. Hmm. Anyone here struggle with impatience? <laughs> yeah. I get impatient with people. Uh, I would be patient. I'd be a totally patient person if it wasn't for all the people. Um, we get impatient with our children. We become impatient with our spouses, with our roommates. Uh, occasionally get impatient in traffic. Um, I get impatient in the grocery store and in checkout lines and just all the time. And, and you know, as, when I'm patient, I'm kind. And when I get impatient, kindness gets sucked out the window. It, it's like if you're wasting my time, I now have the right to be rude to you, you know, suddenly. Because you're wasting my time. And as we all know, my time is one of the highest things in the world. And so you've wasted it. I'm impatient. And now I can be harsh and cutting and angry and nasty to you. And, and I'm justified in doing it because I'm impatient. <sighs> Patience is a difficult thing. But if I love you, I'll be patient. Um, and it requires patience to live together as a church family. It really does. Uh, w- one of the things uh, about living together as a church family is that God is maturing us more and more like Jesus. He's making us more lovable. It's just that it's going wicked slow. <laughs> you know? It, it, you're going to become a more lovable person that it's easier for me to love, but it's just going to take a long time because spiritual growth is slow-mo. All of these metaphors for spiritual growth in the Bible are like fruit ripening and plants growing, and that takes a long time. And, and so if we're going to be patient, if we're going to love each other and stick together as a church, it's just going to take a lot of patience because we're going we're to get annoyed by someone, and then we're going to come back the next week, and they're still going to be the same person. Like, didn't, you had a week, man. Didn't you change that? Like, well, it takes time. Uh, churches make decisions slowly. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Everything, sl- everything goes slow in a church, except gossip. But everything else, very slow. And there's a reason for that. It's because, you know, we're, we're a family, and it takes time for people to get their heads around things, and we're all different. I, I have noticed that people who are entrepreneurs, who own their own businesses, who are executives in companies, are used to making decisions... I've noticed just being in the church all these years, they tend to get frustrated at the church. Because they're like, we would just make a decision and just do it and get it done. Come on. That's how I do it in my business. Like, great, this isn't your business. This is a wicked big family. You know how long it takes for the clan to make a decision? And that's just the nature of things. You're like, oh, I want to get things done. Well, you know what God wants to get done? God wants to make you more patient. You want to get a task done, and God's like, I got a task. I want to make you more patient. Welcome to my church. (laughs) And it takes patience with each other. I wish I could just be king for a day and fix a lot of things in the church. Yeah, then then someone else would need to be king to fix all the things I fixed. So patience. Love is patient. When I'm focused on you, I'm patient. When I'm focused on me, I'm impatient. And so love, it, it, it builds patience. And then you get the second part, all the knots. Not envy, not boast, not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered, no record of wrongs, not delighting in evil, 
not, 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 not. And I, I, I wonder if you read that verse and took out the knots. I suspect you would have a very graphic description of what it was like in the church in Corinth. What was the culture of that church like? Well, read those verses and take out the knots. I bet as a church where there was a lot of envy, boasting, and pride. Paul calls them on the carpet on pride several times in the book. It would probably been a church where people had no problem being rude to each other. People were selfish. It's all about me and my gifts and what I want and my rights. A church where people flew off the handle easily. A church where people kept records of wrongs. Where they delighted in evil. They, they weren't sickened by blatant sin in the church. Now do this. Read that again. Take out the knots. But now don't think about the church in Corinth. Now just hold it up in front of your face like a mirror. And I'll do the same. Am I an envious person? Am I an arrogant? Do I somehow turn all the stories back to me? Uh, am I rude? Am I easily angered? Do I, have a, do, I, do I flap the handle of people? Do I keep a record of wrongs? Do, do I have a, a bunch of grudges against people in the church, in South Shore Baptist Church? Um, you, you know, it, it, am I that kind of person? To what extent has love transformed me? Of course, we, we always justify and explain these things away. We're like, I'm not rude. I'm just forthright. You know, we have euphemisms for our sin. I, I'm not rude and, and impatient. I, I just like to tell it like it is. I'm direct. I'm honest. Hmm. You're like, okay, well, your honesty hurts me a lot and a lot of people a lot. And, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not easily angered. I'm not an angry person. I'm just surrounded by frustrating people. That's all. And so somehow we, we, we justify this. But this is really, con- I, I find it super convicting because I, I find profound selfishness in my own soul and a desire for, for people to think well of me rather than being for others and being pointed toward others. And so there's a call here toward a kind of, of love that, that is self-forgetful, that's not rude and selfish, that's not keeping records of wrongs, but it's focused on the good of others. Let's point out verse 6. Verse 6 is very important in defining love. We, we got it because this one really speaks to our culture today. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. One of the fears I have, probably some of us have, is when we start talking about love, is, is that we start getting that false understanding of love from our culture. You know, our culture says if you love somebody, you will affirm, accept, and approve of everything they are and do. And that whatever their lifestyle is, whatever their choices are, whatever they're into, it's all good. You never tell anyone anything's bad. And you, never, you never push back on anyone, Right? That's what our culture says. And no, 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 that's not biblical love. Look, sin is still wrong. Righteousness is still righteousness. There's still obedience and there's still disobedience. There's still doing what God says and there's still rejecting God's word. And, and rejecting God's word is still bad even if we love somebody. And, and so, you know, in our culture today, if, you, if you're ever to say to someone, you know, I don't think that's right. I don't think what you're doing is right. What do people call you? A hater, right? So we've defined love as affirming and accepting everything everyone does all the time, no matter what. That's not the kind of love God has. That's not how God has treated us. No, God hates sin. And so the person who loves, if you love me and you see me wandering away into sin, 
you're not going to be like, it's okay, let's not judge Jeremy. If you love me, you're going to come up to me and be like, Jeremy, we're, we're all worried about you. Like, I, maybe we got it all wrong, but it seems like, no, 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 and we don't want you to go that way. That's a loving thing to do, is to, if someone is trapped in sin or wandering away into sin, to challenge. Because we don't delight in evil, but we rejoice in the truth. We always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere. There's the last part. There's something tenacious about love. So what is love? Can we kind of somehow scoop up these verses and pull it together into one thought? I I, I suspect if we had to do that, we'd have to say something like, love is a posture of the heart that is for the good of others, even at personal cost. So real biblical love is if I really love you in the way the Bible's talking about, it means I'm going to be for you and for your good and for your growth and for you, even if, and it probably will, cost me something personally. You know, to be patient means I'm for you and I've got to put my agenda on hold. I've got to die a little bit to myself. Uh, to to, to uh, not be easily angered. You know, it feels good just to let loose, doesn't it? There's something satisfying about that, to feel like you've been wronged and then to just let the torch go. But if I'm for you, even if you've done something that should anger me, to be for you and to kind of restrain my anger or to, <clears throat> to not keep a record of wrongs, that means I've got to be for you and I've got to take the wrongs that I feel like I've suffered and somehow do something with them besides keep track of them. And that's a, a bit of a sacrifice. There's, there is, as uh, Paul Smith in his book, um, the, uh, A Loving Life. Some of you guys are reading A Praying Life by him. Uh, he has another book now. It just came out called A Loving Life. And Godwin shared a quote with me from that. It was really cool. But basically, he's, the, the line is that death is at the center of love. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of provocative. Death is at the center of love. That if I really love you, there's going to be an element of death to myself to be for your good. And is that surprising at all? Because isn't that the love that God has shown us? Isn't the cross of Jesus Christ the gold standard, the, the ultimate definition? You know, what's love? Well, it's the cross. We say, well, God loved us and sent his own son. But think about the cross. God, <clears throat> God loved us and his son died for us. Uh, we, we deserve to be expelled and cast out and thrown out because of our sin. But God loved us as sinners so much that his son came and died and took the penalty for our sins. And, you know, you look at the cross and you see a love, the ultimate love that was for the salvation of others but involved a death at the center of it. <clears throat> and so we're, we're transformed by this kind of love. This is, um, this is what we believe, the gospel. So to be a gospel Christian is not just to believe the gospel and to be saved, but it's to learn to live in a gospel-shaped way where, where the love that we have for each other in a church is flowing out of the awe and the wonder that we have that God would love us by sending his own son. Just like we read in 1 John chapter 4 earlier in the service. 
It's because God loved us by sending his own son that we love each other in a way that is for each other at the cost to ourselves. And so this love we're talking about is not just, well, wouldn't it be nice if our church was more loving? No, no, no. This is living out the gospel in how we relate to each other in our growth groups and in our committees and in our ministries and when we're having coffee together and when we're just living together as a body. It's going to take this kind of love. And so that kind of love, that kind of love is awesome. And as it says in verse 8, it never fails. And so now Paul wants to show us a third way in which love is superior. Number one, love is necessary, verses 1 to 3. Number two, verses 4 to 7, the nature of love. It is an other-centered, self-sacrificing kind of love. And then finally, another way love is superior is that love is permanent. Love is forever. Love never ends. Look at verses uh, 8 through 11, rather 8 through 13. Paul says, love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And so all these gifts that you Corinthians are all jacked up about, they're all going to end. There's going to come a point when we're not going to need speaking in tongues. There's going to come a point where we're not going to need prophecy or any other gifts. You say, well, when is that going to happen? Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. So there's coming a point that Paul says when the perfection comes, that the imperfect knowledge and, and uh, revelation from God like tongues and prophecy is going to disappear. So, so when is the perfection? When is that? Some have interpreted the perfection as the, the Bible. You know, once the Bible's finally written, the perfect word of God, then we won't need prophecy in tongues. Um, I find that interpretation very difficult to swallow. It doesn't seem like Paul's talking about the Bible. I think what he's talking about with perfection is when Christ returns. You know, look, look at the, the following verses. Verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Someday we're going to be complete and mature. Verse 12. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. I don't think we're seeing face to face yet. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. I don't think we know fully yet. And so Paul is looking for a time when Christ will return and the dead will be raised and will be judged and those who are in Christ will be perfected and will live in a new heavens and a new earth and in a new creation. And in that new creation, we're not going to need any more gifts. Once we're finally with the Lord... In the new creation together, you're not going to need any tongues. You're all going to speak the same language. You're not going to need any prophecies. You're not going to need anyone to come to you and say, I think God's saying this because God will be right there and we'll know what he says. You're not going to need one more sermon. No one's going to need to come to you and help you with the gift of helps because you won't have any needs. You won't need anyone with the gift of leadership because we'll be with the king of kings. All the gifts will be done. No more gifts will be needed. But what will still exist, what will still be there, bigger than ever? Love. 
In fact, it'll be more love than we've ever experienced. We'll be with him face to face. We will know the love of Christ, unfiltered. You know, you know not, not mediated in this world through all of these things. And sometimes we wonder, does God love me? And we wonder about God's love. When you're in his presence, you'll never doubt his love. You know, it'll be like being in the equator and full sun getting baked in his love. It'll be so strong and so powerful. And we'll love him. All of my sin will be gone. All the junk that makes me love other things besides God, all my idolatry, gone, burned away. And, and all of my hang-ups and my issues and all the bad things that have happened to me in life that distort my thinking, that make it hard for me to accept and receive love, all those wounds healed, forgotten. Nothing getting in the way of me understanding God's love, communicating love back to God and loving God in Christ, and nothing keeping me from loving you. And you will have no problem loving me because we'll be perfected in Christ and and we will see each other without the sin and without the things that make it hard to love each other. All burned away. Heaven is a world of perfect love. It will never end. It's it's our destination. Listen to what uh, N.T. Wright, uh, a New Testament scholar, wrote. I love this. Talking about spiritual gifts and love. He says, the gifts are merely signposts to the future. When you arrive, you no longer need signposts. Right? Love, however, is not just a signpost. It is a foretaste of the ultimate reality. Love is not merely the Christian duty. It is the Christian destiny. I love that. That's our destiny, is love with God and love with one another. And you hear what he's saying? It's as if when we love each other now, when we're a loving congregation now, it's like the love of the future pours backward through time into our present. And and when we're loving each other as a church, the, the way the Bible's talking about here, we are in a sense practicing the culture of heaven now. We're sort of living a little bubble of eternal life now. Eternal life is bleeding back into the present. And when we're here as a church, we're, we're living out the culture of heaven. It's like, you know, this is sort of a lame analogy. It's like Epcot Center at Disney. You go and there's all these little cultures, you know, and you can go check them out and eat the food and all the dress. and this. That's what it's like. When people come into our church, it should be like a little Epcot Center visit. They should be like, what is this? This is different. I mean, I know I'm in New England. I know these are New Englanders, but this is different. What is this place? Why are they like this? People should be getting a foretaste of the culture of heaven, which is profoundly marked by love, as that the future comes tearing back into the past and, and radically is changing us. And so the more we love, the more we are that little model for the world to see. God can help us to love. Isn't it awesome? That's the good news here. As you look at verses 4 to 7 and you see yourself reflected there and maybe there's things you know are problems, here's the good news. God is not done with us yet. God can make us more loving. How do we become more loving? We have to look to the cross and say, Jesus Christ Continue to transform me like you. God, you're so patient with me 
God, you're so kind to me. God, you have not been easily angered with me. You've, you've wiped out the record of my wrongs, God. And as we're overwhelmed by his love for us, it enables us to love each other. We've been forgiven so much, and we can forgive each other the little things that we do to each other. And so it's as we press closer to Christ, closer to the cross, closer to the gospel, that that gospel transforms us to be more loving people, loving like Christ loved. And what about you? Have you ever really received the love of God into your own heart? Have you ever put your faith in Christ and received the great gift of love that God has given us? Have you ever come to that place in your life, and this sounds like not so great, but it is great, that place in your life where you're like, I'm messed up. I'm not the great person I think I am. I'm not the spiritual, decent, upstanding person that I wish I thought I was. There's a lot of selfishness in me. Or to use biblical language, have you come to realize you really are a sinner in need of a Savior and you can't fix yourself? You say, that sounds bad. Yeah, it is. But it's liberating when that's like, bing. When that penny drops, you are so close to the kingdom of God. The next step then is to see that God has made the way for you through sending his son Jesus. Not by telling you to get it together, be more loving. You can't. You're a mess. You need God's power and God's grace and God's forgiveness. What you need to do is what we all need to do. You need to grab hold of Jesus, grab hold of his love, his death for you, his resurrection, and let him forgive you and change you and transform you. Have you ever received the love of God, you personally? Let's pray. And uh, as I pray here, I, I would just invite anybody here who wants to receive the salvation and the grace that Jesus gives just in the quiet of this moment, in the quiet of your own heart, just to cry out to Jesus and to say, Jesus, have mercy on me, save me. I want the gift of love of eternal life that Jesus purchased on the cross. Would you just, in your own words, tell Jesus that? Oh God, I thank you that you hear even the the weakest, frailest little squeak calling for salvation. And Lord, I also pray for our church. Make us a more loving church. I pray for myself. Lord, make me a more loving pastor. I really need a lot of help loving. Lord, we all need a lot of help loving each other. God, make us more like you. Help us to reflect the kind of love you've shown us and help us just to bounce that back to each other, Lord. Help our church to be a foretaste of heaven. God, I thank you, at least from my experience, that this is a really loving church. So I just pray for more, more love, more Christ-likeness, more patience, more godliness, more self, uh, self-abnegation and more love for others. 
Oh, Lord, would you pour out the Holy Spirit on this church? Would you fill this church with the love of God, a love that we can't gym up ourselves, Lord? We need it. So, God, transform us. Stick with us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.